0: The Great Work. Welcome to The Great Work Radio. The Great Work Radio is an ongoing investigation into esoteric iconology and symbolism and is available from jessewaw.com. Each episode we explore different topics with our guests who help us piece together the truth to the mystery which is veiled in allegory and hidden behind symbols. Hello and welcome, and thanks for tuning in to our latest show. It's been a long while since our last episode. I've been attending a master's program, which is now winding up, and I'm looking forward to continuing with The Great Work Radio and hope to produce a weekly program soon, so stay tuned. Dr. Elizabeth Bacchidano is a world-renowned expert on Aztec culture and iconography, as well as a lecturer at University College London. She holds a PhD in archaeology, has appeared on numerous programs and documentaries, and recently won the highly prestigious Oatley Award from the Government of Mexico, which is bestowed upon distinguished Mexicans working outside of Mexico. In this, our first interview with Elizabeth, we explore wide-ranging subjects, including that of her newest book about the Aztec god, Tezcatlipoca, who Elizabeth states is the true supreme deity of Aztec religion. Hi Elizabeth, how are you doing today?
1: Hi Jess, very well thank you, how are you?
0: Fine, thank you very much. So we're here today mostly to discuss your new book, which is called Tezcatlipoca, Trickster and Supreme Deity, which is about what you state is the um, supreme deity of the Aztec uh, culture and uh, that he is the lord of the smoking mirror. So can you tell us a little bit about, first, what is the lord of the smoking mirror? What does that refer to?
1: The name Tezcatlipoca actually refers to uh, Tezcatl and Popoca. So Popoca is smoke and Tezcatl is um, mirror. So it's the lord of the obsidian mirror. So making a reference to both the actual obsidian and, and the mirror itself.
0: And when we went on a, I went on a tour that you hosted at the British Museum last week, and you showed us um, an obsidian mirror, and you showed us a, de- a carving of a deity next to the mirror. Uh, was that Katlipoca?
1: There was a mirror. I don't recall the actual carving of this um itself, but there is a, a beautiful obsidian mirror that has actually been at the British Museum since very early on, since Elizabethan times. It arrived in England sometime in the 16th century.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. There's one in the Mexican collection and then there's also one with John Dee's goods. Are those both antique? Are they both from the 16th or whatever century? Uh, yes. And they were both imported um, into England at that in that century at that time.
1: Exactly. Um, in fact, they were actually in display during the Shakespeare year in London. There was a big exhibition at the British Museum, and uh, and these mirrors were shown together with. And the story of how they were brought and and how they were used in, in Elizabethan times. So this is actually a very interesting object, or they are very interesting objects. There are two, but one of these particular mirrors has a historical tradition in the sense that, you know, they were brought from Mexico with divination purposes. And, and you mentioned the name of this astrologer. Uh, Dr. D. So um, where do you get this information from?
0: Uh, regarding John T., i I've actually found out a lot about John T. I mean, he was, he's an extremely important person in the history of what could be called the occult, right? And he was Elizabeth the first personal astronomer, etc. And And uh, he used the mirror that's featured with this collection, the obsidian Aztec black mirror for scrying purposes, where he would Attempt to basically contact demons through the mirror, right and the question I have is were those mirrors used for magical purposes by the Aztecs or were they just simply mirrors?
1: Well, they were both they were sort of objects of divination And they were also used for the purposes of, of looking yourself in the mirror so if someone wanted to look herself up um, They would use mirrors, but mirrors were used in Mesoamerica From very early on, mirrors have a very special significance throughout Mesoamerica, throughout time. So we see mirrors used by the Olmecs early in B.C. times. And and we see mirrors um, today, even in different ornaments. um, You still see all kinds of, of jewelry made with obsidian and mirrors. And of course, proper mirrors as we know them in the modern world. So, mirrors are really important, um, those objects of reflection, anything that has uh, brilliance is particularly important in Mesoamerica.
0: So the smoking mirror <laughs> part, the fact that it's called smoking, and that polka you said uh, which one means, poca means, uh, or you said popo means uh, uh, smoking, is that what you said?
1: That's right, it's smoke, yes.
0: Like there's a volcano, Popo popotecapetl, right?
1: That's right, And
0: that means smoking something, it sounds like.
1: Smoking Mountain.
0: Oh, wow, that's great, okay.
1: The Nahuatl name for, for this particular volcano, uh, and of course um, it's still active and you can still see the mountain smoking from time to time.
0: Now, the fact that it's called smoking, does that imply that there was some sort of divination involved in its usage? In other words, were they seeing clouds or something in the mirror?
1: Well, you actually see smoke volutes represented in the iconography of the god. So you, you have the mirror and you also see smoke. So you actually have carvings with smoke itself. Anything that produces smoke is also interesting and important to Mesoamerican thought because the smoke goes up Goes to heaven, so there's a communication between, if you like, the earth and the he- and the heavens. So anything that produces smoke is is part of the realm of the divine.
0: Now, is that does that relate at all to um, what's the god that is it Tlaloc or something that they um, sacrifice uh, the the people on and they rip their heart out and while they're lying on the top of the statue.
1: Uh, well, um, there were ritual sacrifices, but in, in this case, there there were sacrifices for the god of rain, Tlaloc. As, as Tlaloc, said. okay. Yeah, so the god of rain was called Tlaloc. And um, there were several types of um, ritual sacrifice. But one of the sacrifices uh, in honor of Tlalo was, as you said, the victims were taken to the top of the temple and placed on a sacrificial platform, and the hearts were taken out.
0: When when the hearts were taken out, was there any sort of, uh, because you were talking about smoke rising to the heavens being a, a sort of archetype for the soul or whatever it would be that would be going to heaven. Was there any kind of incense or um, burning going on after they would rip out the heart? And uh, would they put the heart, I know that they would put the heart onto the, the Tlaloc statue right afterwards?
1: They're, they're, we're talking of two different things. Okay. Uh, one, one thing is the use of incense. Incense was continually used for, for many reasons. It was also a communication uh, with the gods because the smoke went up. Uh, so there was a link between the earth and and heavens. So incense was an important ingredient in in ritual throughout uh, Mesoamerica, not only among the Aztecs, but uh, among the Maya and other pre-Columbian civilizations. And um, Now, in terms of the placement of the heart, the heart was actually um, not smeared or put onto the image of the god. The heart was actually placed in a special container called the eagle vessel, and this um, eagle vessel in Nahuatl is known as Kuo Shikali. So is the eagle vessel. That's the literal translation. So these vessels um, had different shapes, different forms. Uh, sometimes you have a Jaguar vessel, which uh, was also used for ritual purposes, not necessarily just for placing hearts or, or blood of victims, but to place incense, to place uh, clothes, to put flowers. So all kinds of things were deposited in in these uh, vessels. These vessels were manifold, they had several purposes. Uh, So you had the incense, if you like, burning, and you also had the hearts placed in Koshikali, in eagle vessels, in these special vessels where all kinds of offerings were placed.
0: Uh, In in your new book, Tezcatlipoca, Trickster and Supreme Deity, you state that he is basically the supreme deity of Aztec religion. How does that reconcile with Quetzalcoatl?
1: Well, this is um, a a very interesting question, and it's actually one of the chapters of the book is written by Guillaume Olivier, one of the great champions of Tezcatlipoca. In fact, Guillem Olivier wrote his PhD dissertation on Descatlipoca, and he himself was a source of inspiration to the writing of the book because he covers so much material. One of these particular chapters written in my book, Descatlipoca, Trickster and Supreme Deity, revolves around Descatlipoca and... Quetzalcoatl. So it, it's a really important chapter because he delves in detail aspects that really relate them, sometimes as twins, and and oh, right. sometimes they get confused. So it is interesting the analysis that he makes from the creation times, from the uh, creation of, of different eras, to how they Developed uh, and how they were conceived throughout time. For example, um, Quetzalcoatl is is normally seen in different guises. Quetzalcoatl is the plume serpent, but it's also the god of the wind, Ehecatl. So, in his aspect of the wind god, he can be seen, and in fact, you you saw that when you came to the British Museum. And uh, I was explaining. Oh,
0: yes, yeah, yeah, the wind, yeah.
1: Remember that uh, buckle mask as a duck? Yeah, yeah. When he has that particular aspect of the wind god, he is represented with a buckle mask in the shape of a bird, of a duck. And he also, he carries this mask, and it's a long beak with which he blows... So according to uh, creation times, when the gods gathered together at Teotihuacan to create the sun and the moon, Quetzalcoatl, Ehecatl, his aspect of Ehecatl, he actually uh, blew the sun. The, The life began with Quetzalcoatl and he actually made the sun move on its journey, daily journey. So it goes back and he analyzes this from uh, the creation times and how important this God is and how sometimes in the ethno-historical references you get information as Tezcatlipoca and sometimes as Quetzalcoatl. He goes into detail as to what are the dates in the calendar when these particular aspects were honored. For example, in Quetzalcoatl, we see this, his importance in to read, and to read is especially important during the uh, new fire ceremony. This new fire ceremony occurred every 52 years at the end of the so-called Aztec century. So this particular century had some bundles that represented the time of the years when the years were tied up oh so, so that's
0: what you're saying to read that's a sort of fasci, a bundle of reeds.
1: exactly interesting yeah. and then when you have um this this is actually his guys as quetzalcoatl but in the new fire ceremony you actually get this particular notion, you see in the in the carvings, you often have dates, and and you see these particular carvings also during the celebration of the new fire. So during the new fire ceremony, all the fires were extinguished, all the temples were dozed out, all the uh, lights, all the candles, all the well, all the different fires were put out and um, everything was in darkness on so,
0: so they had sorry, so they had fires continuously burning on the tops of those aztec and teotihuacan temples
1: yeah exactly Mesoamerica, wow. yeah. so you could actually see all the fires
0: oh yeah
1: at the temples you could see for example at the great temple of the aztecs the most important aztec temple uh you would have the fires burning day and night And during this new fire ceremony, the very first fire that was lit was the fire at the Great Temple of the Aztecs, the the Great Temple dedicated to both Huitzilopochtli and and Tlaloc.
0: And now that's called Tenochtitlan, right?
1: Tenochtitlan. Right,
0: okay. Tenochtitlan, okay.
1: The Aztec capital, yes. So, um, in fact, this ceremony occurred at the heel of the star which is now not far from Mexico City. Anybody traveling to Mexico City can go to Ixtapalapa and look for the uh, Cerro de la Estrella and see the Aztec remains of the structure of the pyramid, where um, astronomers observed the Pleiades and the movements of the stars when the sun rose. Everyone made a big celebration because there was no threat to the uh, world coming to an end. Um, Oh, right. There was a new period, a new transition to a a new era that guaranteed life for another cycle. Well, now
0: now that you've mentioned that, um, I should ask you, about the Maya calendar and the 2012 thing, just as a little aside, we don't have to talk too much about it, but the Maya calendar, what do you think about that whole prophecy? Because what you just mentioned right now actually is exactly what people were expecting to happen in 2012 because of the Maya calendar, right? Or or is it the, no, it's the Maya calendar. It's the Maya calendar,
1: yeah. that's right, yes. Um, yeah, there was a lot of expectation and there was a lot of anxiety as well as, as you know yourself there were all kinds of devices for people to to go and hide and people made a, a fortune selling all kinds of things for the end of the century but that is something Maya really um, there is a reference to that in one of the Maya codices there is a reference to a terrible flood but yes of course in terms of the Maya calendar without having to you know without spending too much time talking about this there were was this reference to the so-called end of the world but that's not an end of the world as we know it it's an the end of a cycle the end of an era
0: right and that's what you were referring to with the aztecs also they they had a celebration when the new era began
1: exactly so oh, it's, right. it's just a, a transition between one Era one cycle and the beginning of another one.
0: Now back to what you were talking about: Katlipoca, and Quetzalcoatl, uh, essentially being the same deity, and that they came from Teotihuacan. So Teotihuacan means what? Place of the old ones, or something like that. Place of the ancestors.
1: Um, is the adobe of the gods. A, a
0: boat of the gods. Okay.
1: That's right. It's the um, the city of the gods as well. And so, so they
0: so Teotihuacan is basically sort of a Shangri La or something like that for the Aztecs, uh, that, like a legendary place.
1: Exactly. Well, these you know sort of physical place where you can still go and see the most impressive pyramids to be seen in the Americas.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah, I've where, been there. Yeah.
1: Uh, with the Pyramid of the Sun and the Pyramid of the Moon, um, have a very important place in the religion of pre-Columbian Mesoamerica. According to, to myth, the gods gathered together at Teotihuacan to create the sun and the moon and, of course, human mankind. So this is the place of creation, the place where the gods immolated themselves uh, for um, human mankind, and in order to have life, the gods had to sacrifice themselves. and it's it's a very beautiful uh, myth. And of course, in Moctezuma's times, Moctezuma used to make frequent pilgrimages to this particular city often.
0: Wow uh, did he really? Yeah
1: Yeah, and the conquistadors themselves, saw these amazing pyramids when they went to Mexico and, and they described these as a, as a giant structures, huge structures. So it was really an important place of pilgrimage, particularly the Pyramid of the Sun, Yeah, it's a cave underneath and caves in Mesoamerican thought are also considered to be the, if you like, entrances to the afterlife. There are also uh, places of creation. They are also considered to be the omphalos. Um, um, right, yeah. Navel of, of, of the world, They the umbilical cord.
0: Like at Delphi.
1: Exactly. So in in a way, it's, it's like being in a mother's womb in an aquatic environment. Caves normally have this sort of moist and it's this dark interior that brings you to equating being inside your mother's womb where there was this uh, dark interior surrounded by, by water. So uh, caves have a very important place in Mesoamerican thought. They are also considered portals or gateways to afterlife.
0: Oh, like c- cenotes, cenote. Uh,
1: well, cenotes are uh, normally, yes, they're, they're also caves, but they're subterranean sort of caves uh, with water. So they, they are really uh, more cave-like places with darkness, Um, In fact, they are also favorite places for for jaguars. Jaguars go into caves and the eyes of jaguars shine like obsidian. They really look a bit like obsidian eyes. They go and and hide and sleep in caves. And one of the preferred animal or the guise of the goddess Catlipoca is the jaguar. Um, several deities had different animals that were symbols of the god. The most powerful symbol of Mesoamerica is the jaguar. It's the most ferocious animal in Mesoamerica. And, of course, it's the, the feline that is aggressive. It's also an animal that, that is is very much capable of, of um, swimming is is capable of attacking, and it's the largest feline in Mesoamerica. So Tezcatlipoca sometimes is represented as this Jagya, this feline, and we see that. So uh, there's a lot that connects nature, the the natural world, with if you like, uh, with other aspects of nature like volcanoes. And uh, when you see these volcanic glass that comes from volcanoes, you can actually link uh, the importance of, of obsidian with the importance of the natural world and trying to understand and make sense of the physical environment of pre columbian peoples.
0: Uh, And then getting back to um, Teotihuacan, how old do you actually think it is? I mean, I know that there are official estimates, but what do you think personally?
1: Uh, Well, um, Teotihuacan has a very long history of um, occupation. We, you know, there was life in BC times, but its importance goes back to about uh, 100. And then uh, the pyramids that we know as the Pyramid of the Sun and the Pyramid of the Moon have different um, time spans and going from about 200 um, to about a uh, week we can actually say that the the site was occupied until about 650 AD that doesn't mean that everybody disappeared I'm just talking of the climax period
0: uh-huh, right so it's contemporaneous with Rome
1: exactly so um when Teotihuacan was at its height. It had a great trade going from highland central Mexico. Its influence was felt as strongly as far as the uh, Maya territory today, uh, Guatemala and other places in in the Maya world.
0: What dates are the Mayas originally, you know? Uh, I know they still exist, but when did they begin, the Maya civilization? Uh,
1: well, you know, it's very hard to say that because the the Mayas were also alive and and present um in BC times. It depends whether you oh. you talk about the climax for instance um the golden period
0: uh-huh.
1: of of the Mayas go from about 700 and this is in a particular location. If you have been to Mexico, for example, you know Yashilan, or in in the modern state of Chiapas, or or Palenque, mm-hmm. uh, uh, where the ruler Pakal was buried. We are really talking about 700 A.D. and and before. So um, and but the climax period is is about then. Um, you you actually have a uh, fluorescence from 250 to 700, but then the power shifts to other areas in, in the Maya territory. For instance, um, if, if you go to Chichen Itza and want to find out the date,
0: yeah.
1: Chichen is from 700 to 900, so there's all Chichen, but there's also Chichen Itza uh, with the, the pyramids that we see, the Temple of Kukulkan, the Temple of the Warriors, and so on. So that then we're talking about um, 900 A.D., and then Maya fluorescence goes to another place. It goes to Mayapan, and, and then we have in the uh, early post-classic period. So the best, the best way would be to actually find, you know, what are the areas of interest and, and what are the times that people are interested in So the the Mayas continued to flourish, and they were great tradesmen, and uh, they used the sea as modes of transportation, and it was also an ideal way to to have trade. So then uh, the power moved to the coast, and and you have the importance of Tulum, for example. Mm -hmm. Even later. So that goes back to the conquest period in the 16th century. So the Mayas, as you said yourself, haven't really died. Uh, They are still around and and kicking. Um, There are many uh, Maya tongues being spoken. Yeah, they
0: still speak uh, Mayan. It's incredible. Yeah.
1: Yes. uh, Different um, forms of of Maya, different maya languages and yes the maya are luckily still around and and we can see them in mexico in guatemala in belize um in honduras El salvador so yes um we we still have a lot of 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 the maya culture in fact even some of the food is still kept some of the houses are built in the same way as as they were built are
0: they stone houses or or thatch
1: uh, yes, there, some are thatch houses and you can see them with the raised platform to avoid the house being flooded in the rainy season. Um, so, you, you know, you, you still find the importance of weaving. People are still producing a lot of uh, textiles that are beautiful, uh, particularly in Guatemala, but you still see them in Chiapas, mm-hmm. uh, in, in San Cristobal. So, many of the traditions are still alive and you can even see the importance of certain animals like deer and people still continue to eat venado they they eat deer the yucatan is called the land of the pheasant and and the deer so yes maya life it continues to be uh in many ways um similar yeah uh, and they that,
0: must they must be a really strong culture to have survived all of powerful influences that have dominated mexico
1: absolutely yeah. yes it's, it's a very strong culture and, and the mayas are very proud people very 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 proud and i'm uh, proud to keep their their traditions alive
0: now, is the architecture and building materials of Mayan uh, pyramids and you know style, design style, is it similar to um, Aztec and Teotihuacan? I would assume that Aztec pyramids would be descended stylistically from Teotihuacan. Is that the case or no?
1: Yes. Well, for instance, um, <clears throat> this, this is actually um, a, a very good observation because the in Spanish it's called talud tablero. These slopes uh, and these talus. Mm-hmm that make the pyramid. You know, you have like a, like a talus resting on a table. And uh, this particular style of construction, uh, and architects use the word talud um, tablero. That is the entablature and the talus uh, create these pyramidal shapes that were copied as far as Guatemala and in the same tradition. So you actually find this talu tablero architecture throughout Mesoamerica, throughout uh, the maya world and um, sometimes they didn't have the stone to build with like in highland central mexico there's a lot of basalt um, but they replace it with uh, local materials and they survive very well in in tremors in Mm -hmm. uh, earthquakes um, they must
0: after all these centuries, right?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And you find that even some of the constructions, uh, for example, in Chichen Itza, you have observatories in a different shape, round structures.
0: Right, right. And
1: right. and this has influenced very strongly um, American architecture. You you find, uh, uh, for example, in some of the constructions in, in California, you, you have... Um, The architecture in in the Guggenheim as well in New York Mm -hmm. is like the observatory in Chichen Itza
0: Wait, is that is is that Guggenheim? That's Frank Lloyd Wright, right?
1: It is Frank Lloyd Wright. Yeah,
0: Frank Lloyd Wright was definitely heavily influenced by uh, Aztec and Maya architecture, especially Maya, I think, right?
1: Exactly Maya architecture and you see um, even some of the houses uh, the way the uh, the distribution of the rooms in uh, to make the rooms airy, to have a lot of light, and and to make the rooms spacious, you you find that a lot. And I was talking about this uh, the Guggenheim building, which is a copy of the observatory in Chichen Itza. I didn't uh, know that.
0: That's yeah, very interesting. Yeah,
1: it's like a snail shape, and of course you go up in uh, following. Um, a snail type shape.
0: Is it? I is oh, sorry. Are the stairs on the interior in the observatory in Mexico, or are the? Is the the snail shape is like a a Tower of Babel shape?
1: Um, well, it is in in the case of Chichen Itza, what you actually have is is like a cake, and in the case of the Guggenheim, you go like a snail. But inside,
0: right, outside,
1: right. But it's, uh, it brings you from, from the bottom. If you walk up, it takes the shape of a snail. But this is very much derived from Maya architecture. There are lots of different round constructions in Mesoamerica. For example, uh, one of the structures in highland central Mexico that was um, built in, in, a, in a round shape where the temples dedicated to Ejecatl, the wind god because they these round structures offer less resistance to the wind. So um, you find round constructions in Highland Central Mexico. You also find them in Veracruz. You find them um, in, in observatories, in Chichen Itza, in Mayapan.
0: Was there so, a, Was there a circumambulatory, ritualistic aspect to the climbing of the tower?
1: Um, n- not that I'm aware of. What you actually have is um, for instance, the presence of a number of steps, uh, and the steps are diagnostic, um, so you can sometimes go up. And, and you find thirteen steps, and, and uh, this is actually related to the different layers of the underworld and the thirteen layers um, to get to the top, to get to the sky. So, but yeah, no, I don't. Going back to your original question, I don't think it's it's similar to what you were describing before
0: because that would imply that there are somehow sacred phalluses if they were to circumambulate them I would imagine actually I don't know it's, it seems like a shape like that would just naturally be phallic is there any evidence of phallic worship in Mesoamerica
1: um yes there is a lot of phallic representations in Mesoamerica and in fact in the Maya region you find all kinds of phallic representations uh, big phalluses being uh, carved. And they are outside buildings in one of the ball courts or in several ball courts in Cantona, in the modern state of Puebla. And mm-hmm. uh, there are also uh, phalluses depicted in the in ball court. So the ball court and the ball game had different meanings. But one of the ideas behind the practice of the ball game was the promotion of fertility, both. Uh, human fertility as well as agricultural fertility. You you find lots of uh, phallic representations also uh, in connotation uh, with the earth. You have representations of all men holding phallus in in the Huastec culture. So you see all men with phallic representations.
0: Where uh, where is Huastec? Is that north, Mexico?
1: Well, the, you all, you get this in, in, it covers three different um, states. Um, there's the Huasteca Potosina, Huasteca Potosina, um, Tamaulipas. So this is, um, it, it, var- it varies from the center to the north.
0: Okay. And then, okay, so the assumption is always uh, amongst alternative historians. I mean, obviously the official history is that Uh, Mexico never had any influence whatsoever from Egypt or China. But alternative historians will usually assume that Egypt influenced Mexico somehow in in the building of pyramids. But I think that that's uh, probably mistaken just because it seems like there are pyramids all over the world. There are pyramids in China. There are pyramids in Eastern Europe. Obviously, there are pyramids in Egypt. There are pyramids in Mesoamerica and many other places as well. So what do you think is really going on? Was there some sort of ancient sort of human ideology that was prevalent all around the world and it's just something that we really don't know about except maybe in sort of studying mysteries and such like that, that there might be some sort of secret knowledge somewhere. But what do you think, is there any inf- cross-fertilization uh, going on between all these cultures? How did this happen? <laughs>
1: Well, I think cultures are capable of producing the same things independently. There isn't any need, uh, you know, to have a primary culture bringing influence or bringing um, the recipe to erect monuments in, in the way that that they did. So uh, this idea of, of the Egyptians bringing the construction techniques to the Americas or that there was this contact between Egypt and the Americas is is completely ill-founded. There there are all kinds of, as you said, of structures that appeared in different parts of the world, and and people can do the same things in other parts of the world without necessarily having any contact, without necessarily having any influence from one another.
0: What about the legend that Quetzalcoatl? At least one sort of aspect of quetzalcoatl is based on potentially like a viking appearing from the east and um, being a great white god and they'll say that quetzalcoatl was basically a great white god is there any evidence to that what are your thoughts on that
1: well um the vikings were great navigators there's no question about that it's not impossible that the vikings could have uh, reach the coasts of, of Mexico and would have made their presence felt in Mesoamerica. I don't doubt that. But yes, uh, you know, um, I think to say that Quetzalcoatl was this um, white bearded man um, that was a Viking, it's, it's it's a tall story. You can't really um, make a categorization just because you hear there was this white God, and right,
0: because it could be purely symbolic.
1: exactly. Yeah. so um it's it's a very um uh, I think simplistic approach. But the fact that the Vikings were great navigators, there's no question about that.
0: yeah, and the fact that the story exists suggests that there's some sort of base to basis to it, you know, but exactly. what the basis is is the question, you
1: know and how much we we know of that is something else. you know you you can't. With one particular example, postulate a the whole theory.
0: Right, right. And then the other thing, the question that this is my own personal observation is that Mayan art seems very similar to, um, I think it's the, the Tang Dynasty, 11th century, uh, 1100 BC in China. Have you ever noticed that similarity? Because it's very striking and powerful.
1: Well, uh, yes, um, there are lots of similarities between the Chinese and, um, and the Maya, for instance, uh, both the Chinese and the Mesoamerican people uh, had this predilection for working jade, and jade had a tremendous significance both for the Chinese as well as for the Mesoamerican Did people. Did really? I didn't know that, that's interesting. <clears throat> Yeah. So you, so the the Maya, for example, absolutely loved jade, and and the same can be said for the Olmecs and many other Mesoamerican civilizations. But the Chinese um, worked jade beautifully from very early on, and there is still that um, love assigned to to jade. So there are similarities. You you actually have masks covering um, the, the deceased in the likeness of, of the disease. So, for example, the ruler Bakal was found to have uh, a jade mask, and this particular mask had his, his likeness. The Chinese had used jade for mortuary purposes as well as, as the Mesoamerican people. People who could afford jade put a a jade bead in the deceased mouth because it it acted as a passport to afterlife. Jade also had an importance as a symbol of vegetation, uh, of the lush vegetation. Mesoamerican people depended upon agriculture and the greenness, the association with the verdant uh, color of jade and, and fertility go hand in hand. So, jade was important in in pre-Columbian times and from B.C. times right through to the Spanish conquest, jade was really important to all the Mesoamerican civilizations. It was only when when metals were introduced from South America into Mesoamerica, about 850 A.D., that uh, gold became a little more important, particularly with the Aztecs, than jade itself even though uh, there there are not too many gold objects extant today because the Spaniards took a lot of, of gold. Yeah. <laughs> but also because uh, gold really has been found in, in lesser amounts, particularly at the excavations of the Great Temple of the Aztecs. But that doesn't mean that the Aztecs, for example, did not love gold. They, mm. they adore gold. And this is something that I... Mentioned in my book on Tezcatlipoca that the god Tezcatlipoca was adorned with with gold, with gold bells and the importance of gold and Tezcatlipoca also go hand in hand.
0: Yeah, because so- the, the, it's often kind of just brushed off as like, oh, the Aztecs were just teeming with gold They didn't and they didn't care about it. So the Spaniards just took it all or something. But you're saying that basically, no, they did actually really value
1: gold. Exactly. <laughs> and are they really treasure gold. We, we see uh, the gold symbol, as I pointed out in, in the gallery talk, that um, the, the gold symbol is present in, in crystal. You find um, the gold symbol in, in jade. One of the carvings representing the moon goddess in Aztec, Mexico, has not only the, the symbol of gold, but actually the name. She who makes herself up with rattles. She has rattles on her cheeks. Uh, she who decorates her face with rattles. And this particular face uh, has rattles made of gold. Rat, the-
0: rattles, like from rattlesnakes.
1: Exactly. Yeah. But rattles, no, yeah, but rattles as, as meaning bells.
0: Right. And then stylistically, uh, besides the jade, which I had no idea about, and that's amazing, the Mayas employed what I consider to be uh, square spirals, right? A square spiral kind of motif, uh, you know, theme going on. With a lot of their architecture and then you see something very similar basically the same thing in the Tang Dynasty do you think stylistically there's any linkage in other words I'm, I'm really asking you do you think there could have been any kind of contact from China
1: there's no question that there, there was a contact with um with Asia was there and, and, you know, the, the men sort of crossed the Bering Strait and, of course, a lot of culture was, was brought with them. And we see a lot of that in Mesoamerica and in other parts of, of the Americas. So um, yes, I, I think there is, for instance, the presence of um, shamanism. That is very Asiatic. I don't know if that answers your, your question, but...
0: Um... Well, I know they just found a belt buckle. They Some archaeologists in Alaska just dug up a belt buckle from about 1,000, or actually earlier than that, 600 to 800 AD, that was bronze, and the Alaskans had no uh, way of having made such a thing, so it had to have come from Siberia or China or Mongolia or somewhere. So that proves that there was at least some kind of connection going on, uh, 1,000 to... 1400 years ago
1: absolutely that that there, there was that connection with with asia there's no question about that but you know it, it's very difficult to to say you know i'm to jump from one culture to the next and without doing a proper analysis
0: yeah and it's all just it's still just all conjecture for the most part isn't
1: it but it is true that um, there was definitely contact with Asia. There's, that is absolutely certain. Yeah. And then
0: also uh, Polynesia, perhaps, too, from Easter Island or, or those types of places. <laughs> You've right. taken
1: me around the world. <laughs> China, Easter Island. Yeah, it's, you know, contacts are, are not impossible. And, you know, there has always been a good naval system in, in the world. So yes, but I, I wouldn't really like to uh, to comment on Easter right. Island, and um, especially when some of my colleagues are great experts on Easter Island.
0: So basically the Aztecs, especially the Aztecs, but also obviously the Incas, and to a lesser extent, the Mayas, you don't hear about this much with the Mayas, but the Aztecs are often basically just written off as having been bloodthirsty, uh, sacrificers, you know, child sacrificers and human sacrificers, but that actually, that kind of sacrifice, just like pyramids, it took all. Over, it took place all over the world. Um, so you have like, you know, people, the Canaanites or whoever sacrificing children to Moloch in Jerusalem, and then you also have in the in people compare the Aztecs with the Christians to say that the Christians civilized the Aztecs, the civilized Mexico, Mesoamerica. But I'm not sure that that's necessarily entirely accurate because the whole Christian mass is basically a celebration of human sacrifice or at least a sort of mock human sacrifice, right? With Christ um, drinking his blood and eating his flesh. So what is your reaction to the, the labeling of Aztec culture as having been bloodthirsty and savage?
1: Yeah. I, I think it's a, this is a, a real uh, misconception and this is propaganda made from the Spaniards uh, in the 16th century and people have actually believed it. If you look at the excavations at the great temple of the Aztecs, the most important religious temple of the Aztecs, where over 150 offerings have been found. If you look at the remains of individuals who were killed in ritual sacrifice, you actually find that the number doesn't exceed 140, perhaps, skulls found in the excavations. And these are systematic excavations that have used all kinds of specialists um, from physical anthropologists, archaeologists, historians, all kinds of specialists have been working at the Great Temple of the Aztecs. Uh, when you see the number of individuals found, you, you can't really say that um, the Aztecs were really bloodthirsty and killed people. Yes, they, they did have this religious uh, idea that um, humans had to offer the most valuable thing that they had that was blood. So, um, blood was shed, but it was shed for religious purposes uh, to keep the sun alive, to, see, to keep the sun in movement. Now, all these individuals that were killed ritually were captives of war. And oh, what, really? So, the people we kill are captives of war, in, in, in wars in the West. Um, but sometimes there are children who are also killed and they're not really the target, but they end up being killed in, in modern wars. Now, the Aztecs did have sacrifices, but yes, um, the number was hugely exaggerated by the Spaniards because they had an agenda. They, they wanted to justify their actions. They wanted to justify before the king that they were needed in that territory that they were barbarians, that they were capable of great things, that they built wonderful houses and wonderful buildings. But um unfortunately they had this terrible religion and they had to extirpate that pagan religion and they needed to be indoctrinated into the Catholic faith. So- right,
0: right. And it's interesting because the Christians had the same complaints about the uh like I said, the Canaanites and Middle Easterners uh, pre-Christian uh, people in the Middle East who were also conducting sacrifice and basically that was the Christians' justifications for going up against them uh, or conquering them. And you know, actually to be fair to Christianity, there is some argument that they may be correct in some respect because first their mass, their version of uh, mock human sacrifice, is not actual human sacrifice. It's one sacrifice of one legendary character, Jesus Christ, who is being sacrificed again and again ritualistically, but in a mock ritual. So they are actually saving countless people from actually being sacrificed. So in that sense, I think their argument probably is somewhat sound.
1: Yes. Uh, but, the, you know, you, you can also say the same about um, the aztec you, you have one individual who impersonated one god, and perhaps he was also uh, ritually killed and and we have to make this distinction is ritual sacrifice And these are captives that were taken in the battlefield. They were not killed in the battlefield. They were taken alive in order to offer them up right in, uh, Ritual sacrifice and, so, and
0: the the sacrifice would dress up as the Sun God
1: uh, well um, they they were dressed in different forms depending on uh, as to what deity they were impersonating. So uh, yeah. you, you have, for instance, the impersonator of the Scatlipoca, Boca, who um, had to be a man who had no blemishes in his body, who had a perfect body. He was not too fat. He wasn't too slim. Um, he was able to play the flute. He was able to give a, a good speech to speak well in public who was able to, you know, impersonate the god. And and he impersonated this god for a whole year. It was only at the end of one year that he was then offered up. And and he died um, willingly because he became the personification of the god himself.
0: Thank you for joining us during this episode of The Great Work Radio. The Great Work Radio is available from JesseWaugh.com. That's J-E-S-S-E-W-A-U-G-H.com and can also be listened to on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other services. You can also support The Great Work Radio by clicking on ads, listening on YouTube, and leaving comments on our radio episode blog posts.